0: So you have good news for us, both on relieving extreme poverty and curable disease. What are some of the statistics?
1: I do have good news. I think one of the extraordinary things that we don't spend enough time celebrating, noticing and celebrating is that over the last 15 years, 20, 15 years, we've made extraordinary progress in eradicating extreme poverty, where we're nearly... A Half the level of extreme poverty, that's poverty of less than $1.25 a day that we were 15 years ago. And if you look at key diseases like HIV-AIDS, like malaria, death rates of malaria down nearly 50% in 15 years. HIV-AIDS, I often think, is one of the most dramatic stories of all. In 2003, just 50,000 people in sub-Saharan Africa on life-saving antiretroviral drugs now more than 9 million. I mean, that's an astonishing figure. That's 9 million lives saved. And if you look at what in many ways I think is the key statistic on human progress, which is the number of children who die before they're five, we've halved that in the last 15 years from more than 12.5 million to less than 6.5 million. And there's no reason whatsoever if we pursue the sort of policies that we've pursued in the last 15 years with determination and financing and resources and political will. We can't harp it again. So yeah, there's lots and lots of good news out there. But, and there's always a but, things can go wrong. One needs to maintain progress. One needs to maintain pressure. One needs to make sure that politicians keep their promises to deliver finances and resources, that the scientific community continues to work on eradicating terrible diseases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we've made an enormous amount of progress. That's the good news. Now we have to keep it going.
0: Keeping vigilant on policy is where you folks come in with, with One Campaign. You have action alerts, or how do you plug people in?
1: I'm so glad that uh, that you said that, because that really is one of our key objectives at the One Campaign. We do a number of things. One of the things is we make sure that the resources are there. So we advocate and lobby to make sure the governmental resources, not just from here in the US but from the UK Germany, France, what have you are there to tackle extreme poverty and uh, and uh, and preventable disease but that 's really just the start of the journey. The key thing is to ensure that there's an accountability mechanism so that governments keep their promises so the governments actually deliver what is promised and that 's where our six million members around the world are absolutely vital because they with us can make sure that the governments keep their promises and that funding and resources are maintained. For example, we did a lot of work last year on Ebola, and the key thing in Ebola was not just to log the promises of money and material and personnel, indeed, going to West Africa, but to log what was actually delivered. So we set up a pretty sophisticated Ebola tracker so that we could kind of really keep an eye on, uh, on what was not just promised but what was delivered. So that accountability piece of what we do is, is absolutely vital.
0: Are we learning and accumulating the kinds of information, very practical information, that we need to do to each time do this better, like a response to Ebola, for example? I
1: think we are. I think we are. I think that's a terrific question. And I think the Ebola crisis was a wake-up call is a cliche, but you know what I mean. The Ebola crisis came out of nowhere, And it did force us to learn some lessons. And and I think those lessons, I hope, I should say, those lessons will be learned. I mean, the lessons are we need a much, much better rapid response system for transnational health emergencies than we had. The international agencies, frankly, were caught asleep at the switch. Uh, some NGOs, Médecins sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, in particular, did absolutely heroic work. But they were they were blowing the whistle on this a year ago, this time last year, and it wasn't really until the late summer that the international community woke up. When it did wake up, it was very fitful. It was very uncoordinated. Tremendously by I have to say, tremendously by President Obama, who really stood up and uh, and committed uh, U.S. resources and in particular you, the U.S. military to help but it was a very, very fitful response initially. I think the other thing is that we've learned the importance of healthcare systems, not just of kind of, not just of individual interventions to look after whatever it might be, HIV AIDS or TB or malaria or what have you. Those are really, really important, believe me. And the fact that we've been able to concentrate on some remarkable killer diseases and really kind of tackle them is no small thing. Uh, but I think what we learned in West Africa is that beyond that, we need healthcare systems. We need trained nurses, we need technicians. this This doesn't all mean you know thousands of highly skilled pediatricians with degrees from Johns Hopkins. you know, I mean, it means people who can handle uh, for example, the uh, the safety equipment in an appropriate way, who can handle hazmat suits in a certain way, who can who are skilled in being able to take tests and interpret them. So there's a lot of systematic investment in, uh, in health care that is needed, and I think that is going to be a real takeaway from Ebola.
0: Yes, I, I think we've learned that the countries that did have an infrastructure were much more able to respond both quickly and appropriately, like Nigeria yeah. was just more in a place of doing that than Sierra Leone, for example.
1: No, that's, a, that's, that's 100% right. A lot of people have rightly said That uh, the Nigerians really did a remarkable job in controlling the outbreak there, which could have been catastrophic because you have kind of very, very high density of population, particularly in places like Lagos. I think one point that is often missed about Ebola, though, is that actually everyone did well. You know, I mean, you're talking about Sierra Leone, Guinea, Liberia. They're three of the poorest countries in the world. They're all post-conflict countries. They're all countries that uh, have very, very, very little in the way of resources. And if you think of the scale of the burden and the deaths that were being predicted, rightly being predicted last October, November, and where we are likely to end out, that's quite remarkable. And, you know, it is really important to tip one's hat to local governments who, who really, really pulled out all the stops. It's very, very easy to write the stories about this didn't happen. Medicine is backed up at the quayside in whatever city it is. No doubt all that happened. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that I, I, I think we do a disservice to, to the Ebola story if we don't recognize that the local government's really stepped up to.
0: Yes, they seem to be able to get in gear uh, once things were activated. Why were we slow to respond and to help?
1: That's a very, you know, that's a very complicated question. I think we will be spending a lot of time in the next year or so uh, exploring that. The World Health Organization has done a postmortem of its own um, of its own performance, uh, which I don't think anyone would slap a gold star on the organization for. Uh, there were curious mixed-up uh, lines of control and accountability, which definitely got in the way of uh, a speedy response. I think beyond that, there was an uncertainty about who exactly, about who exactly was supposed to do what. So when you have a transnational health emergency. Who's got the docket? Who's got the brief? Is it the WHO? If it is the WHO, okay, guys, what are you going to do? And who are you pulling in? What resources are you pulling in? What capacity do you have to go to the rest of the UN system and pull stuff in? And what uh, capacity do you have to go to other countries? Uh, So if it's the WHO, let's be clear about that, and let's be clear about what resources they have. One of the things that tends to happen in this business, frankly, is that the CDC, the United States' own uh, agency in Atlanta, uh, often becomes the world's 911. You know, it's sort of call, you know, call Tom Frieden at the CDC and see what they can do because they have a lot of the capacity and the skills and the expertise to do it. So I think there was a lack of clarity in exactly who had the docket uh, and then a lack of uh, sense of whoever it is who has primary responsibility, what do they do to kind of pull all sorts of resources together? There's no rapid response. There's no NATO for, for, for global health. It was an episode of Downton Abbey where kind of everyone was uh, was saying, after you, no, 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 after you, no, really, no, after you. Now, why don't you go, no, no, please, my dear fellow, you know, after you. Uh, and meanwhile, people were dying. I mean, it was it was pretty outrageous.
0: Well, hopefully we'll be able to organize ourselves more rapidly and more efficiently the next time this comes around. I hope. If it does. Um, the success on the HIV-AIDS is just so exciting, We've heard of so many different efforts in, in various parts of Africa. For example, very grassroots plays going on in local theater. You know, just all kinds of efforts to change the culture and be able to have the success that's been gone on. Uh, radio played a great part in that. For sure. In the U.S., we have this popular idea that we need to shrink government. And if we grossly shrink government, what would have happened to the AIDS effort?
1: That's a, that's a, that's a really terrific question. There are lots and lots of heroes in, in what's happened to HIV-AIDS over 20 years, more than 20 years. Um, you know, if you go right back to the 1980s, you have all the activists, many of them in the gay men com- community, in the LGBT community, LGBT community more broadly, of course, uh, who, were, who were really brave. And, and I'm sure incredibly irritating, too, but that was, you know, part of being brave and who kind of really made sure that the disease would not be pushed off into a corner and that it had to be research, had to be funded, and et cetera. And they're, they're true heroes. Then you had incredible doctors and scientists, people like Tony Fauci, now at the National Institutes of Health, who, you know, kind of a real, real hero of our times, and many, many others, not just in this country either. And you had the drug companies who, who put, you know, real resources into finding treatments, and then frankly, you know, under political pressure from people like President Clinton, after he left office, drove down the price of drugs. Then you had, um, as you rightly say, you had an amazing amount of local initiatives in the developing world of people trying to change behavior, change, change sexual practices, do education, do all sorts of, uh, of community learning. But what I'm building up to, of course, to answer your question, is that we would not have achieved the uh, success that we have if governments had not written really profanity-deleted big checks. I mean, checks with eight figures on them. You know, United States taxpayers, since George Bush stood up in 2003 at the State of the Union speech and announced PEPFAR, the U.S. program on international aids, have, uh, have I calculated or we calculated last year, U.S. taxpayers so far have kicked in $55 billion dollars. On international AIDS. that's big money. That's big money. So some of these things you can't do without writing a check with eight figures. You know, I mean, when we and others went out to lobby last year for a new four-year replenishment of the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria, we were looking for more than twelve billion dollars. More than twelve billion dollars. I mean, these are these are these are you know these are big sums of money. That we have to get, and your implication is right that if you shrink government government to nothing, you won't get those big sums of money. Now, your listeners probably know because here we are in Boulder, and and I can just imagine the profile of of KGNU. But most people don't know that this is this is pennies on the dollar that we're contributing here. This is less than one percent of uh, of the U.S. federal budget that we're that we're talking about. That goes through all these programs is nothing. It's nothing. But your point is absolutely right. That if you keep, if you keep kind of saying government can do nothing, I'm the guy in the back of the room saying excuse me, excuse me. The U.S. and other governments signed really big checks and put together really effective programs with substantial taxpayer support and substantial bipartisan political support. The fight against international AIDS was started by Republican president, George W. Bush, with tremendous support from his people and carried on by, uh, by Barack Obama. You get the funding together, you get bipartisan political support together, you get political leadership together, you can do extraordinary things.
0: Do you ever fantasize that one day the sole use of our military resources would be immediate response teams? <laughs> I mean, you know, that's just, let's just fantasize for a minute. Um, but... In lieu of that, what do we know really works?
1: Over the long term, uh, the way that you really tackle global health problems is by building up healthcare systems, and in particular, and this is crucial, by making sure that the funding for those systems doesn't just come from the largesse of the American or the British or the German or the French taxpayer but that it comes from domestic resources generated in the countries themselves. And that's the big change that we're seeing happen. And it's one I completely applaud. You know, we're seeing the response to global development and health problems increasingly being less about what we call ODA, you know, in other words, aid, uh, and more about domestic resources. Now, aid is still incredibly important. It's particularly important, particularly important in fragile states, and to address the needs of the absolute poorest, and 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 will remain important for some time. Incidentally, we've all got to do our bit here. And you know, some nations in the developing world are growing at seven or eight percent a year. You know, they're uh, they're going at a kind of feral clip. And they need to step up to the plate too, and say that the benefits of our economic growth are going to be spread equitably. They're going to be spread around the the population. They're going to go to health issues. They're going to go to education issues, and they're not just going to be appropriated by an elite who is going to stash them away under a palm tree in the Caribbean or in a you know office high rise in uh, in London or New York.
0: Right. Switching from curable disease to extreme poverty, let's touch down on a few areas. Do you see countries like Democratic Republic of Congo and Central Africa Republic to be able to negotiate with giants like China in Mm -hmm. order to improve the lives of their people in response to selling off their resources, basically?
1: Well, you're asking me the tough questions because, you know, those are two of the most difficult countries in the world to... uh Think about when one thinks about eradicating extreme poverty, because they have very thin state systems, really thin. In other words, when you get two people down, you know, there's not a lot there. Three people down, there's not a lot there. Uh, and although in both in both situations, you know, you hear stories of kind of significant improvement, uh, but you have thin states, uh, and you have on the other side, as, as you pointed out, multinational companies, you have Chinese investment, you have what have you, uh, and it is... Not that easy at all to write the appropriate contract, the appropriate deal, whatever it is to make sure that you have the resources uh that you can then spend on health and education schools and clinics so that is that is a that is a genuine problem. I think it is clear that if we look to the next fifteen years. The last mile, only it's not really a mile, it's the last billion. I mean, the last billion who we will really have to concentrate on in terms of eradicating extreme poverty are going to be by far the most difficult to reach. And the last billion will often be in conflict or post-conflict zones. I coined a phrase which, you know, others have now picked up, you know, war zones are poor zones. I mean, if you see war, you'll see poverty. Uh, And frankly, if you see post-war, you'll see poverty too. I know Liberia pretty well. I've been there three times in the last few years. I have incredible respect for what uh, the Liberian people and the Liberian government have done since the end of the Civil War in 2003. But you know, when the when Liberian Civil War ended in 2003, there, are, there were, what was it? I know 25 doctors in the whole country for a population of 3.5 million. I've probably got that number wrong, but it was tiny. There was no electricity in Monrovia at all. None, 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 none. Uh, and the And the basic infrastructure had just been kind of completely destroyed, and you can still see it now you know you can still see bullet you know pockmark walls and uh and burnt out buildings twelve years on twelve years on moreover of a of a pretty determined government so there's no doubt in my mind that fragile states, thin states as I like to call them, states with kind of very kind of thin capacity conflict zones and post conflict zones and I would add. Uh, and some of this goes together. Uh, places that are hit first and worst by climate change too, and often there's a often there's an overlap there. Uh, they will be the most difficult nuts to crack as we move towards the eradication of extreme poverty. And they are the states, to your precise point, that don't have the capacity that we would like them to have in conducting deals with those who are going in to, um, to build uh, extractive industries for their natural resources, whether those are uh, uh, Western multinationals or Chinese multinationals. Well, one of the things that we can do, one of the things that we can do is we in the West and the North can make it a lot more difficult for corrupt elites uh, in the South to, to take advantage of uh, the extractives industry just by skimming money off the top and hiding it in Switzerland or in, you know, under a palm tree in the Caribbean or wherever it is. So one of the most uh, encouraging developments in the last few years, it, which we the one campaign have very, very much been in the forefront, Uh, is working really, really heavily to make sure that you have transparency of payments by extractive companies to local governments and that you continue to trace that money so that you have tax exchange systems uh, which which include countries in the developing world so that people know if someone is skimming off the top where it's going.
0: Let's switch to an area of Africa where financial transparency is very difficult because of the way that money is exchanged so uh, quickly with cell phones and so forth. Somalia. Hmm. Do we just have to wait for Somalia to sort itself out, in a sense, to be post-conflict before um, efforts can be made there? These
1: are intensely complicated situations. In that whole swathe of land in the Sahel from, you know, Mauritania on the Atlantic coast right through to Somalia on the Indian Ocean, you have this triple threat of extreme ideology, extreme climate, and extreme poverty kind of coming together. And that breeds instability that one can see, you know, very obviously in Somalia and those absolutely tragic events in, uh, in Kenya just a few days ago in Garissa University. You raise an important point in saying that when you have a situation like Somalia, you have to do something which we are not very good at doing, which is being patient and, and kind of letting things... Letting things sort themselves out, and sometimes military intervention will help, and sometimes perhaps it won't. What one does know is that anything that one can do to alleviate extreme poverty, you know, absolutely does help to reduce one of the stress factors in very, very complex social situations, which can kind of spark a real conflagration.
0: It's interesting that you make it sound like a perfect storm of three factors. I never really thought about it like that. I would assume that areas of extreme poverty are so desperate that they are ripe for political extremism, which in turn makes the poverty worse.
1: I myself have always felt, always kind of passionately believe from when I started my prior life as a journalist, when I did a lot of writing on terrorism and a lot of studying after 9-11, I myself have always felt that it was extraordinarily short-sighted not to think that extreme poverty... And sort of immiseration and a a reduction in life chances and a reduction in dreams and aspirations was not an incredible factor in providing a pool from which leaders could draw support for um, violent acts.
0: Could we add maybe even a fourth factor, which would be gender inequality? Because it seems that when women are disenfranchised, poverty is increased, the lives of children are at risk. Um, areas where there's most extreme gender inequality. Is that also a poverty factor?
1: There's absolutely no question in my mind that it is. I just think that the evidence is overwhelming. Poverty is sexist. To adopt uh, the uh, title of a report that we did a couple of months ago, poverty is sexist. Uh, Poverty hits women and girls more than it does men. On the other hand, if you really frame your interventions in trying to eliminate poverty so that they address women and girls first, you're gonna reap the benefits over and over and over again. So there's no, absolutely no question in my mind that in this year, 2015, when we're putting together a new development agenda, that if we don't put women and girls at the centerpiece of everything that we say, at the centerpiece of our framing, at the centerpiece of where we're trying to put our resources, at the centerpiece of how we're trying to describe this to people, We don't deserve to be in the game.
0: Yes, we know that the biggest bang for the buck is to invest in a woman because she'll invest not only in her family and in education, but in small businesses and so forth and so on. And and her children.
1: And her children. So it becomes a self-perpetuating virtuous
0: cycle. Can we touch briefly on South Africa? Because that's not been a conflict area recently. The promise of Mandela's leadership is falling a bit short in terms of poverty. What's working the anti-AIDS program was very strong in South Africa, and that's working. But in terms of poverty, where can South Africa go now?
1: Well, uh, great moment to ask me because I'm going down there next month, and I haven't, been for, uh, I haven't been for 18 months or so, so I'm really looking forward to uh, going back and seeing our office in Johannesburg and talking to friends. And I'm going to be at a conference in Cape Town. I'll you know, see lots and lots of South African friends, and I'll, you know, I hope I'll be able to kind of take the temperature of the place. I think some things that the South African government has done in the years since freedom, you know, have been very significant. I mean, if you look at electricity access, for example, it's been spectacularly successful at rolling that out. The infrastructure remains really, really good and, you know, of a, of a quality that you simply don't see anywhere else in sub-Saharan Africa. But I know what you mean. There aren't many Madivas, there aren't many Nelson Mandelas in the world. And to imagine that those who came after him would be able to have that same sense of a prophetic voice and moral stature, a bit unlikely, you might say. What we've seen in South Africa, in 20 years now, right, since the first three elections in 1994, I think what we've seen in South Africa, and are still seeing, and it, and it will take some time, I believe, is the almost inevitable difficulty of a freedom fighting organization turning into a party of government. I've met members of the South African government who I, who I hold in the kind of greatest, highest regard. Uh, I really do. But I think that transition from the ANC, which was a clenched fist organization and had to be, for God's sake, under the circumstances of apartheid, into managing a functioning modern state, I don't think any of us should expect that transition to be necessarily a smooth one. But I'm, I'm actually bullish on the whole of Africa and I'm, I'm bullish on South Africa. I mean, I think there is, you know, an incredible capacity of uh, human talent there. Uh, and a determination to extend the benefits in a more broad-based way than perhaps has been done so far. And um, I'm looking forward to going down there next month.
0: Well, good luck. And thank you very much for sharing your thoughts while you're in town for the Conference on World Affairs. Good luck and um, safe home.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed it.